Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's critical that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries. As a climber, I've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet. That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping to solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. For nearly a century, Rolex has backed explorers and innovators who strive to understand and protect our natural world. In this series, we'll dive into the stories of those people who are at the forefront of the quest to keep the planet perpetual. On this episode, I get to talk to Joseph Cook, a glaciologist who studies the melting of our ice sheets. His open-sourced approach to technology and data has changed the way his contemporaries are approaching climate solutions. In 2016, Joseph became a Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureate, which has helped expand his scientific mission. Hi, Joseph. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. Hi, thanks for having me. Brilliant to be here. So tell me, what is glaciology? Glaciology is the study of glaciers, which are frozen rivers of ice on Earth. And how did you get into it? Well, you might relate to this, actually, because for me, it all started with climbing. I got into climbing when I was about 11 on the sandstone cliffs around sort of the south of England. And straight away, I was, I was reading and I was dreaming about going off to explore the big walls in Yosemite and the, and the Lake District and Wales in the UK. And as I started to actually go to these places and experiencing the, the scale and the, and the beauty of them, I found myself wanting to understand more about them. And what links these places is that in deep history, they were sculpted by ice. It's a big jump from being an excited young climber to being a glaciologist, because I was also an excited young climber, and I grew up going to Yosemite, and yet I didn't wind up becoming a glaciologist. I mean, is it just curiosity that drives you to understand more of that process? I mean, what pushes you that next step to becoming a scientist? I think I'm just motivated to solve problems and solve puzzles. And in a way, that's one of the things that drew me to climbing. It's because there's a mental aspect, and it's the same thing in science. You know, there's there's crossover between the two things. And I just happened to discover that quite early on. So I started to read about glaciology. And what I quickly realized was that this force of nature, strong and powerful enough to, to sculpt the earth, is at the same time vulnerable and sensitive to our actions. And that's, that's how I ended up working in glaciology. And I'm interested in how microbes are making the Greenland ice sheet get darker. What do you mean by uh, darker? Like, how does the ice sheet get dark? Well, when you think about ice, you expect something that's bright white or maybe maybe blue, but that's not always true. In some areas of the melting zones on Greenland, the ice is actually almost black. And part of the reason for that is the growth of algae on the surface. And is, is this algae on the ice, is this unique to Greenland or is this true for all glaciers? Well, in, in Greenland in particular, over the summer, the snow retreats to reveal the glacier ice beneath, as is the same that happens on, on glaciers worldwide. But in Greenland, the ice doesn't just sit there exposed and melt. It goes dark, by which I mean it, it gets the kind of colour of concrete rather than the colour of ice. Now, you expect when you, when you land on the Greenland ice sheet that it's going to be white or it's going to be blue. But in Greenland, that's just not the case. If you land in this dark zone, it's got this dark brown, kind of almost purplish colour to it. And for a long time, people thought that, that well, that's, that must just be dust falling out of the atmosphere. And in fact, if you rewind all the way back to the 1800s, 
the early polar explorers, in particular this, this explorer called uh, Adolf Nordenskjold, wrote about this strange colour in his diaries. And he thought it was dust falling out of the atmosphere as well. In fact, in his diaries, he refers to it as, as cosmic space dust. But there was so much of it covering such a huge area, and it was so dramatically dark that he felt inclined to put it under his microscope and realised that it wasn't space dust at all. It was actually something that was it was alive. It was this algae that was growing on the surface that was unlike any algae that had been seen in other places. What did you do on your first expedition in Greenland, and, and how did that sort of set the course of your science? Well, the first trip to Greenland was quite an interesting one, actually, because when I, when I went out there, you know, I was all geared up to go out and do this, uh, this, this amazing experiment about how the water's moving around and what it carries with it and, and how that influences runoff into the sea. And I'd built in advance these uh, water level sensors that I'd built myself. I was so proud of it. And out we go. And on day one, I wire all these things up and make some mistake somewhere along the way. And when I wire up the battery, each one of these little units, every single one in the network just popped in a little, uh, a little <laughs> puff of smoke. Every single one ruined on the first day. And... Yeah, I just had no idea what I was going to do. And I was there with this new group of people that I, you know, I wanted to make a good impression. So I was just devastated. And so I spent a couple of minutes just sitting on the ice, just looking around thinking, what on earth am I going to do? And I thought, well, maybe it's worth just measuring the reflectance of the surface in the same places that they're looking at this algae. And maybe there's something in that. And it turns out to have been quite a, a major issue. And that mistake then kind of opened the door for the research that I've been doing for 10 years since. That's quite an experience. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like, what was the emotional toll of blowing up your entire experiment on the first day? For the first hour or so, it was pretty rough. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I just, I just felt like a complete waste of space. Like I made a terrible mistake in going. So, so were you able to actually do a meaningful experiment that season? Like on that trip, you were able to use those sensors and, and actually study the albedo of the ice. Is that is that the right term? Is that albedo, the, the change in the reflection? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I've been saying reflectance so far because I wasn't sure whether albedo was, was common terminology. But yeah, al albedo is the correct word for the reflectance of the surface. And yeah, those measurements actually ended up being in a publication in 2012 that was one of the foundational papers for this um, topic. Was that the most gratifying moment of, of your science career to date? I mean, that must be amazing <laughs> to go from being a complete botch to doing something fully, you know, meaningful like that just by sort of just sheer good luck. Yeah, I, I, I do enjoy that story sometimes when, I, when I'm feeling brave enough to tell it. <laughs> yeah. Joseph's discovery may have started off as a mistake but now his research is being used from the ice sheets of Greenland to the moons of outer space. So how many times have you been back to Greenland since then? A lot. Um, <laughs> six, 16, I think, at the latest count. You've been to Greenland 16 times? Yeah, 15 or 16. Why are you working in Greenland so much? I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about Greenland. Just sort of reiterate why, why Greenland. Well, Greenland is the largest mass of ice in the northern hemisphere and it's a huge store of fresh water that when it melts it contributes to sea level rise and the Greenland ice sheet itself is one of the fastest contributors to sea level rise worldwide 
and it's getting darker year on year. And the reason it's getting darker is because of the growth of this algal bloom on the surface, which is what I study. So the reason why I'm interested in Greenland is because there's a very interesting problem to solve related to the algae darkening the ice, and it has real-world implications for global sea level rise. And so what have you been studying since then? I mean, over 16 expeditions to Greenland, uh, you know, where has your science taken you? Like, what, what are you working on now? I kind of like to divide the science up into three phases. And at the moment, I'm in the third phase. But right, way back then in 2010, where I first went out there and, and for a few seasons after that, I was in what I call the discovery phase. And this was really about making on the ground measurements and just establishing the basic concept. Is, is this thing really happening? Is it really true that these invisibly small microbes are, are influencing the melt rate of a, of a continent-sized ice sheet? It seems unbelievable, but my eyes are telling me it's true. Can we establish it scientifically? The second phase then was, was trying to scale that knowledge. And to do that, you have to use drones and satellites and looking back at the ice sheet from space to find out how it's changing as a whole. And then the third phase is prediction. And it's taking all of that knowledge, it's taking all of the monitoring capabilities and the tools and the software that we've built and turning that into predictions of future impacts. What does it mean for climate change? What does it mean for sea level rise? What does it mean for biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm just sort of edging into the third phase now starting to build the mathematical models to predict into the future. I was reading your blog, uh, which, you know, I'm sure you get that all the time. People that meet you on the street and they're like, so I was reading your blog about, uh, <laughs> you know, repelling into ice caves in the winter. But when I, I was reading about you going into ice caves like that, and you mentioned that it has some application to what life could potentially look like in space, because those kinds of conditions of deeply underground ice, you know, like if things can live there, that's how they potentially could on other planets. Did, did I understand that correctly? Basically everything about it, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Well, pretty much. I mean, if we, if we want to start to explore other icy moons and planets in the solar system, then we need to just need to develop some idea of what to start to look for. So if we want to do that, we need to find the closest analogues that we can on Earth and explore them. And the closest thing that, that we can really get to, to the dark, cold ice that we might find on, you know, for example, Europa, is probably deep inside the Greenland ice sheet. So that, that, that was a lot of the motivation for why we wanted to go down these ice caves in the first place, as well as just for the kind of exploration element, but also for this astrobiological link. Like that's, that's, that's next level. Can you explain the, the stakes when we talk about Greenland melting, you know, the ice sheets in Greenland melting? When we lose ice, the Earth becomes less effective as a mirror and it absorbs more light and heats up. And that's one of the primary drivers of climate change. It's called the albedo effect. And it's a self-amplifying feedback. It's a vicious cycle because when you get less ice, you get more heat, which melts more ice, which <laughs> causes more mm -hmm. heat and it, it, it runs away. That's one of the big things. The second big thing is that the Greenland ice sheet is a major store of fresh water on land. And as it melts, that fresh water is being released into the oceans and that raises the sea levels globally. And Greenland ice sheet is actually the fastest source of sea level rise today. So studying it is really, really important for being able to manage uh, sea level rise in the, next, in the next few decades. With support from Rolex and other incredible scientists around the world, Joseph has been able to expand the impact of his work on climate change. 
So when you received the Rolex Awards for Enterprise in 2016, uh, what was your reaction? Like, what did that mean for your research? I was just astonished. I, I really couldn't believe it. And it was completely transformative for, for my research, for my personal development, for my career, for my network, for everything. It was a, an immediate turning point in my life. And, and why is that? Spell that out. For, for several reasons, really. And the thing that's had the longevity and the, the, the persistent value is just the access to the other people in the Rolex community. People that I would never have, have had the opportunity to speak to were it not for being part of the award. When I was, when I was first working on this biological albedo reduction problem as part of the Rolex award, Rolex put me in touch with um, Chris Hadfield, the astronaut. He was the commander of the International Space Station. And I got to ask him about his experiences of being in the Arctic and, and viewing the Arctic from space. He's one of the, the only people in history that's seen the ice from where the satellites see it. And mm. thanks, to, thanks to just this, this access to the network, I, I got to sit down with him and get his perspective on climate change and, and the vulnerability of the ice to our actions. And someone that's got a completely unique perspective on, on the planet, having seen it from, well, having left it and looked back. And, uh, and every year, there just seems to come some opportunity to speak to someone incredible that's completely inspiring and changes the way I think about things. Have you actually worked with any other members from the, the Rolex network? Yeah, I have quite a few actually. The two that jump out are Francesco Sauro. He's the he's a, he's a caver from Italy, and the other one is a scientist from the UK, a volcanologist called Andrew McGonagall, hmm. because he got his award in two thousand eight when I was one of his students. <laughs> cool. And uh, so I saw him get it. Think, well, that's the coolest thing I've I've ever seen. There's no chance that I'm ever even going to be in there, <laughs> like. That's just a completely different world. And then eight years later, I, I somehow found myself in the running for one. So I approached him for his advice. And, and the whole way through, he's been a bit of a guiding light. And we've worked together on some actual tangible science things since as well, like developing some new sensors, including some smartphone spectrometry uh, instruments that have been used both on the volcanoes and also on the ice. Yeah, and I remember speaking to him for the same podcast yeah, I mean, there are some similarities with your work with using drones to to, to yeah. measure the effects. It's been brilliant, actually. And, and yeah, he's been a bit of a mentor figure through the whole thing. That's, that's awesome. Even though he works on one of the most challenging issues facing humanity, Joseph is hopeful about the next generation of climate conservation. On a global scale, what do you think needs to be done to get people acting on climate conservation? Obviously, we need to dramatically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and then quickly develop new technologies for removing the existing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and storing it effectively and generating clean power. I mean, it's no mean feat. But on, but on the personal side, what do you think is the best way to engage people in this? I mean, really, this is the, the challenge of our time. I mean, this is probably the defining issue of this generation. Like, how do you get people engaged in that issue? And how do you, you know, encourage people to even try I think people are getting the message. I think people are getting inspired. Um, I, I really do. I, I, I can sense a sea change. And I think that, there's, that we're very close to having a critical mass of people that care sufficiently to, to actually exert some real change. Have you heard the term solar punk? No. Okay, well, so, like solar punk is like a 
artistic movement that that kind of imagines what the world might look like after society's problems have been solved like uh, climate and environmental problems are a, a bit of a key area and there's just this, all this beautiful art with uh, reimagined cityscapes in this you know environmentally harmonious future <laughs> it's kind of like climate fiction i guess at the end of the day but I just like that there's this hopeful movement growing under the surface and that people are using art and music to to just fight the slide into dystopia. You're like, oh, it is nice to be given a, a slightly hopeful vision of the, of the future. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I just think that the generation below mine is just unbelievably powerful because the era that they've grown up in has had real-time connectivity, international connectivity it, by default. And climate change has always been a, a legitimate spectre hanging over them for the whole time they've been alive. They actually care. Those are superpowers. And uh, <laughs> just think that the, the, the confluence of, of the technological advancement we've seen over the last couple of decades and that generation coming of age could just be an extreme force for good. I mean, what, what advice do you have for anybody who'd be interested in doing similar work to you? One of the really nice things about working in this field is that whatever interests you have they can be beneficial to this question because it's so interdisciplinary. So if you're interested in biology, then great. There's a whole world of microbiological questions for you to answer. If you're into physics, then there's a whole world of spectroscopy. If you're into computing and writing code, then there's tons of software projects that that require more hands. If you're not so scientifically inclined or not so technically inclined, there's a huge need for people to re-communicate this information to the public in inventive ways and not just easy to understand but ways that that use emotion and use aesthetic and use art and use music and things that that touch us on an aesthetic level rather than just a rational level yeah i guess what you're saying is that there there's ample opportunity around all things with science and climate right now that no, no matter what your passions are there's something useful for you to be doing there's something that you could do there's some benefit that you could convey with whatever skills you have mm -hmm. and so what are your hopes for the future Personally or, or large scale? Both. I would, I would really like for some of my work to just bootstrap someone from the next generation into the field. And at a very large level, yeah, I guess I, guess I just hope that, <laughs> I guess that people take on some, some solar punk tendencies and start being hopeful and that some of these amazing entrepreneurs and, and communicators that are coming up from the next generation get some traction and that things get better, not worse. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, <laughs> I, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah. That was the amazing glaciologist, Joseph Cook. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. To learn more about Joseph's work and how you can help make the planet perpetual, check out tothepoles.co.uk. Be sure to catch the next episode when I'm joined by Topher White a technologist who's listening to the world's rainforests with old cell phones. You can learn about the next generation of Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureates at rolex.org. Thanks for listening.